So, as Anna said, over these next four weeks, what we're going to be doing is looking at a series which we call The Way of the Cross. Why have we called it The Way of the Cross, not just the meaning of the cross? Because as I think you'll discover as we head through these four weeks, the cross is the central image of Christianity. We've got one right behind us. And as you know, the cross appears everywhere. But it's actually there to teach us something about the way we live and the kind of people we are. So we're not studying the cross or looking at the cross for the sake of getting a little bit over on someone else, building up our doctrinal knowledge. We're always in everything learning so that we might live in a certain way. And uh, over these next four weeks, we're going to look at these four themes. The victory of the cross, the example of the cross, the solidarity of the cross, and the power of the cross. But as Anna said, tonight we're going to take a look at the victory of the cross. Now, now the thing about it is, is um, the thing about all this is really this. I talk to endless people who are part of our church, and to tell you the truth, are part of all sorts of other churches. I've just been away like Friday night and yesterday in Northampton talking to a church um, as they came together at a conference center to think about where they're going. And everybody's interested, everyone's interested, in what we do at this church in terms of inclusion, in the inclusion of, <coughs> of all people, not just, uh, not just LGBT uh, communities. We are absolutely inclusive of the LGB and T communities, but the inclusion of others. And what goes alongside that inclusion our engagement or our involvement, if you like, um, inclusion and involvement in community. So people ask me about the theology of the inclusion of groups of people that are sometimes left out of the church. And as I explain it to them, I sat on um, a phone and talked to uh, the BBC in uh, Northern Ireland uh, this morning because they've got something uh, that they're hoping well, they're putting through Parliament uh, tomorrow around about uh, whether gay marriage should be allowed or not allowed. So I did an interview, and the interview was really quite theological. And somebody was asking me about what Jesus said about this and what Paul says about this. And I was trying to explain what Paul had to say in the context in which he said it. And they're grappling with it, and they're going, oh, okay, I get that. But there's a problem. I'll come to that in a moment. And then I was talking uh, in the last two days to this church about what we do in the community. And I was saying for us, church isn't really just what happens on a Sunday. In fact, church isn't that at all. Church is a community. So it's not that church is what we do on a Sunday morning and Sunday evening. And we also happen to run a children's center and a primary school and a secondary school and a farm and this and that. But they're just projects these are part of who we are. It's a joined up, holistic, integrated approach. It is all what we are as church. And people go, ah, because you see, what they're used to is church is about Sundays and church is about services and church is about praying a prayer to give your life to Jesus so you go to heaven. And after you've done that and done a few kind of um, uh, Christian initiation courses, it's really good if you do a little bit of project work. Do you know? And if you're that sort, it, it'd be really good if you got involved in a food bank or something, but it really is an extra, an add-on. And if you get too far involved in all that kind of stuff, you end up with this terrible thing called the social gospel, and you lose sight of the real gospel that's right at the heart of things. And as I try to explain to people my understanding, only my understanding of what Jesus was really saying about involvement, people go, ah, ah. But the problem is this. The problem is this. I find it um, here. You know, we have that course that I do from time to time now called Being Human. And it introduces people to the theology of um, our church. And uh, what happens is people sit there and go, oh, my, really, they don't say it quite like this, but my brain really hurts. I, I can't deal with all of this because I was taught this and this and this and this. And how do I put this new piece of teaching into all those old pieces of teaching? It's like trying to fit something new into something old. It's like there's this 
huge wall and I and others keep taking bricks out and trying to put new ones in. And the whole thing is toppling and falling over. The problem is this, exactly that. What I am really suggesting constantly is we built the wrong wall in the wrong place. And it's no good trying to take out one or two of the old bricks and shove some new bit of understanding in there because it doesn't fit with the wall. It doesn't fit in. The whole thing comes tumbling down. In fact, I think that the metaphor of a wall of doctrine, so we we know what we believe about this and that and this and that, and we build it all up, is the wrong way of looking at this altogether. And I'd suggest to you a different kind of metaphor. I don't know if you've ever bounced on a trampoline. It's fantastic. Even the most unhealthy person, probably the most unhealthy person, bounces higher than anyone else, actually, because the more weight that comes down, the further it goes up. A trampoline is an amazing thing. It propels you up into the air further than you can possibly imagine. Instead of thinking of a wall of theology... Perhaps we should think about a trampoline. And the trampoline is this, as we all know, as far as I can see, my understanding is the central truth of the Bible is this, God is love. God is love. Jesus comes to say it. John, the gospel writer, tells us, eventually, now, we have seen God as he is. He puts it like this. The word of God has become flesh and we've seen him full of grace, undeserved love, unconditional love. That's what the word grace is. (coughs) The word has become flesh and we've seen his glory full of love, grace and truth. Love, grace and truth are the same thing. They're not in opposition to one another. Sometimes people have taken an objection to stuff I've said, I don't know about you, and they say, Steve, pastorally, what you're doing about this is wonderful. It's full of love and grace. But theologically, I've really got to take issue with you. The number of times I hear people say that to me. Can you see how people have juxtaposed grace and love and truth? People say to me, I wish I could be as inclusive as you. I can see it's wonderful and I know that people have been hurt in churches. But actually, we've got to adhere to truth. When love and truth end up on different sides of the fence, I put it to you, my understanding, for you to think about, not for me to, uh, not for me to impose on you, that if grace and truth have ended up in different places, we probably, probably got it wrong. Because Jesus is full of grace, full of grace, not a bit of grace and a bit of truth, and he's got the balance right. God does stuff like that. He's just got, oh, he's got just enough grace in there and just enough truth in there. He's full of grace and full of truth. Because God is love, yeah, and God is truth. So truth and love turn out to be the same thing. And when a truth is not love, it's probably not true. So I put it to you, that the trampoline is God's love. And instead of building a brick wall of different doctrines and then wondering how they fit together, we need a trampoline called love. And that springs out everywhere. It's really quite simple, and Jesus put it that simply. Again, this is no surprise to you, if I tell you that you know this already, Jesus one day is confronted by someone who's an expert in the Old Testament, and the expert in the Old Testament says to him, and what's the greatest commandment? And we all know this story, don't we? When Jesus says, well, the greatest commandment is you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is a rabbi. The expert in the law is an expert in the law. And they both know that the Ten Commandments happen in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Yet Jesus chooses... A principle, not a commandment. There are ten really good ones in Deuteronomy chapter 5. From Deuteronomy chapter 6, he chooses the principle that says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And it's not a commandment at all. 
And then, as if to rub salt into the wound, he chirps up and says, and there's another one just like it. And the legal experts go, what do you mean another one just like it? You've not quoted one yet. And Jesus says, you should love your neighbor the way you love yourself, which is already amplified to mean you shall love your enemy as well. That's how, how far he stretches neighbor. And of course, that doesn't come from Deuteronomy at all. That comes from a different book altogether, the book of Leviticus. So Jesus brings together these two principles that aren't commandments, and he says, these two great commandments sum up all of the law, that's the first five books of of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, and the prophets, the law and the prophets. These two great commandments, to love God and love your neighbor the way you love yourself, sum everything up. That's it. End of story. All the rest is just commentary, as you would have heard me say before. Jesus actually puts it like this. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. These two great uh, principles sum up the law and the prophets. In other words, they underpin everything. They are the trampoline. Everything else is contextual. The Ten Commandments, the the 613 do's and don'ts, all of the teaching of the uh, the, um, prophets, all of that is just how you work out what it means to love God and love your neighbor as yourself in any specific circumstance. It's the contextual stuff, the application. But the trampoline, boing, is love God. Jesus didn't say boing, by the way. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a trampoline, not a brick wall. Does that make sense? So when we're trying to shove new bits of thinking into our brick wall, we're bound to end up confused. But I've been taught this and I've been taught that and I've been taught this and I've been taught that. Tear down the wall. Get yourself a trampoline. Call it God's love and enjoy life. It was Augustine, I think, who said, well, I thought it was Francis and somebody, uh, St. Francis and somebody told me on Friday that it was St. Augustine, love God and do what you like. Who said that, Anna? You're a big genius on these things. It was Augustine. There you are. St. Augustine says, love God and do what you like. He got it. God's loves the trampoline. God's loves the boing point. Love God and do exactly what you like after that. The Dalai Lama got it as well. You would have heard me quote him endlessly before. I think it's a brilliant quote. He said, rules are great in life, but when you grow up and mature, break them. Rules are wonderful until you know how to break them properly. You see, it's the same point. Love is the trampoline. Against such things, there is no law. Paul says it as he introduces the fruits of the Spirit that we've just been looking at over these last five weeks. So where does this, um, this kind of legalistic view of life come from? The problem is, as I've learned over the years I've been a Christian, that most Christians believe that God is love and spend their whole lives believing at the same time that God doesn't like them. Now, I'm not going to ask you your opinion of yourself, but most people I meet who are Christians struggle with feeling that they're not right, really the ticket. If, if anybody else in this congregation now knew what you were really like, what you were thinking earlier today, your attitudes this week, some of the things that have been through, through your thought processes or your life has been about, ah, We all walk around with this huge sense of guilt. So where does that come from? Well, the cross is central to our faith. And it's central to the way we understand things. And I think a lot of that, if you like, the foundation of the wall, the wall that builds as much guilt as anything else, because it juxtaposes truth and grace instead of pulls them together, I think it starts with the cross. So, um, I'd like to uh, introduce you to some Bible verses. This is John the Baptist. John the Baptist describes Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Referring, I guess, to the cross. Jesus himself explains this. For the Son of Man, his favorite nickname for himself, did not come to serve or to be served, uh, did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. What on earth does that mean? Give his life as a ransom for many. There's been a a lot of stuff said about that. Later, he said, we're going to take some bread and wine later. Drink, all of you, of this, Jesus said. For this is the bl- uh, my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, the forgiven- for, for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here's another one. This is from Paul. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What does that mean? The Bible says a whole lot about Jesus' death and resurrection and keeps telling us that it's about the forgiveness of our sins. It is the central event of our faith. But actually, the Bible has no one theory of how the cross works. But here comes the theory that you've been taught. You've been taught this, I know. You've been taught that God is a righteous and holy God. He is love, but he's also holy and just. Therefore, he just can't overlook all that stuff you've done and thought and said, the person you've been. Therefore, God looks down at people who aren't Christians, not with eyes of love, but unfortunately, because he's just, he needs punishment. And the only deserving punishment for the way you've lived, I'm not trying to, I'm trying not to look at anyone individually here, is death. You've been told that. You've been told that. You've been taught that. We have sinned and God in his righteousness, because he's just, just can't accept us. John Calvin talked about, uh, the great reformer, he talked about human total depravity. We are lost in our sin. You've heard that said? And God needs, because he's a righteous judge, to wipe us out because of that. But he sends Jesus, who is perfect and sinless, in our place. And when Jesus hangs on the cross and dies, God the Father has to turn his face away. That's in one or two songs, isn't it? Because he can't look on sin. And as he turns his face away and Jesus dies on the cross, in the words of a famous song, the wrath of God, the anger of God is satisfied. And finally, he can look at you with eyes of love. Have you heard that said? Yeah? I guess you've all heard that said. It's called penal substitution. Angry God needs, needs substitute. And he substitutes Jesus. And Jesus dies because there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, we're told, which the Bible never quite says, by the way. But That's how it gets quoted. And Jesus' blood is shed, so ours doesn't have to be. And therefore, becoming a Christian is about praying that prayer. So, has he, when someone dies, we always say, had he prayed the prayer? Had she prayed the prayer? Because if you prayed the prayer, you're in. If you've not prayed the prayer, bad news. It doesn't matter how you've lived as long as you prayed the prayer. Do you know? Somebody's lived a wonderful life, but you go, but he wasn't a Christian. He never prayed the prayer. Whereas somebody could have prayed the prayer and then cheated on his tax for life, you know, bought duck houses galore in Parliament, etc., etc. But he prayed the prayer. He's in. He's a Christian. That's okay. It becomes bizarre, doesn't it, when you stop to think about it. And I put it to you, that most of our construct about the way we see God has started with this particular understanding of the cross, which scares the living daylights out of most people and makes someone who is a Christian judge everybody else as the recipient of God's love, uh, wrath, not love. As you wander down the road, the first thing you think about people on a bus is they're all lost. Whereas I actually believe that God looked at all the people on the bus or the people you wander past on the road with eyes of love. So, we're going to take a little look at these different views of, uh, of the cross. Because, as I say in the front of the news sheet, it's perhaps surprising that there never has been an official meaning of the cross. Different Christians and different denominations at different times in different cultures have held all sorts of different meanings, but somehow... In the Western world, we come to think that, 
or most of us have come to think of, that this particular understanding of the cross that I just set out is the only way of thinking about it. So, here's the thing. If I put a bowl of flowers right there, a wonderful bowl of flowers, and I asked you uh, to... uh, Anne was just showing me a drawing that she'd done earlier. And I asked you all to draw this bowl of flowers sat from where you're sat. The truth is you'd all draw something different because it's your impression of the real thing and it's just an impression of the real thing. And some of us are better drawers than others. But the thing is that you guys over there, you draw the flowers from this angle, partially obscured by this. And you guys, you're much closer up and you draw different flowers and different colors from this side. But if we put all our drawings up together, we notice this. They'd all be different, every single one of them. Every single one of them a different impression. Every single one of them a different angle, a different take, all subjective, yeah? But if we look carefully, we'd realize they were all drawings of exactly the same thing. Does that make sense? Different takes, but of the same thing. However, if we did that and I got one of you to go outside and do a drawing of the bus that I just saw go past... And then we put all the drawings up, different takes of the flowers, but one drawing of a bus, you'd all go, that's the odd one out. It doesn't fit. It's renegade. All the others fit together. They're different takes, different drawings, different angles, but clearly are the same thing. But the picture of the bus is the picture of something that's ugly, not beautiful. Over the centuries, different theologians, different thinkers, different churches have taken different shots, if you like, of the cross. They've seen it from different angles. Its richness and depth they've seen in different ways. I put it to you, though, that the ugly picture of a wrathful God doesn't fit. God says this, you've heard this, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Forgive your enemy. And yet, somehow he runs the universe by a different moral code where he allows a thousand suns to go down on his anger as he heaps it up until he can get blood from Jesus. Somehow he is unable to forgive us in the same way as he asks us to forgive each other. Does God run the universe by a different moral code than the one he asked us to accept and adopt? This angry view of God makes some of his followers equally angry. If God's angry with the human race and we're his representatives, we better be angry. And a whole lot of finger wagging and banner waving has gone on in God's name. But there are different ways of looking at the cross. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at one of them. Over to Jerry. I can't think and stand still at the same time, so I have to walk about. Steve has been talking about, you know, who is, who is the person of Christ and, and how do we make sense of the cross? Um, and I think, you know, the, if you look at literary criticism, for example, when we look at literature and poetry, um, when we try to make sense of articles that we read in the newspaper, one of the things that we do is we view the part in the light of the whole. We view the whole texture of everything that someone has to say. And I think if we look at um, some key elements of who Jesus was, then that helps us to make very good sense of the cross because we see his concern for just ordinary, very flawed human beings. So, James, if you could whack up my slide presentation. Um, I guess the central theme of my slide presentation is to do with chains of injustice, which is um, a theme that crops up in the passage of Isaiah, chapter 58, where Jesus says, you know, I don't want your religious festivals conveyed to me this way. I want you to break the chains of justice, of injustice, that limit the quality of life of human beings. Because I, God, 
if you'll forgive me for putting words in God's mouth, I care about the welfare of human beings. These are human beings made in the image of God. Steve talked this morning about the, the message from Hebrews that we see in God, the, sorry, we see in Jesus, the very essence of who God is. And similarly, if we as human beings are made in God's likeness, um, you know, we're much loved, um, human beings wrought together mysteriously in our mother's womb, as it says in the Psalms, then actually we, we bear a dignity and a characteristic that comes from God. And this is very, very well illustrated, I think, by some key expressions of Jesus. So, James, if you wouldn't mind whacking forward to uh, slide number one. I think this is a very good example of an over, overarching, overweening theme that Jesus quotes to express some of his priorities. You know, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to people who are impoverished, deprived, marginalized, excluded. You know, if we want to talk about inclusion, we need to talk not just about issues of sexuality. We need to talk about issues of race, of social class, of mental health, of different ability. A whole range of different, you know, ways, parameters by which we exclude people from our gatherings. I spent some time in Pentonville Prison working with serial killers and rapists and people who try to kill themselves because life is so unpleasant there. Um, And, you know, prison is where you find the people that society doesn't want to include. If you saw the Andrew Marr show this morning, for example, you might have seen him interview Peter Gilmore from Pink Floyd talking about running the Liberty Choir um, in Wandsworth Prison, which consists of um, partly of prisoners, so that when they come out, they have an opportunity to, to meld in with this choir with whom they've been singing. They have a place to go. They have people to see. They have people who know them. They are known and loved and welcomed. Guess what? They reintegrate into society. Surprise, surprise. But isn't this a wonderful statement of everything that Jesus wishes to identify with. It's, it's a wonderful, this is, you know, this is a, a classic nailing of the colors to the mast. So I, I put it to you, as Steve would say, that we can't make sense of the cross unless we look at who Jesus declares himself to be. Next slide, please, James. So guess what? A bit down the road... John the Baptist's disciples come along and say, hang about, <laughs> are we hearing it right? And Jesus says, what do you reckon? What do you see? Follow the money. What's going on? Next slide, please. Sorry, next slide, please. And, you know, Steve, I did this this morning. I confused Jesus with Steve. It's it's not, you know, it's one of the things you do, you know. Um, I love it. You know, someone once said God gave us a lot of guidance when he gave us a brain. I think there's a lot of truth in that, really. Um, And Jesus uh, treats our brain with respect when he says to the bloke that talked to him earlier that Steve talked about, you know, that the whole of the law and the prophets subsumes to this, you know, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And for me, the six most powerful words in the Bible from that passage in Matthew 24, Matthew 22, are the ones that say of the second commandment and, and the second is like it meaning the second is like the commandment of you know, the first. In other words, what, what Jesus is saying is that the dignity of being human, talking about being human, is on a par with the dignity of God himself. And by the way, just talking about Ten Commandments for a minute, have you noticed that there are four commandments that relate to our relationship with God and six that commandments that relate to our relationship with your neighbor? And by the way, what's the biggest single thing you can do to love your neighbor? Answer, not kill him or her. And I'll be referring to that a little bit later on in terms of killing. So the overall commandment, and of course, you know, the, the Apostle John follows this up in his letter. How can we claim to love God and we have not seen when we do not love our neighbor who we have seen? In other words, the bleeding obvious, isn't it? And so as Steve says, you know, for many years people have um, thumped their tub of religiosity whilst treating their neighbor less than equally in terms of dignity. And who is my neighbor after all? Well, again, that lovely story of the caring Samaritan. Jesus' parables. If you do a study on all of Jesus' encounters with people, very, very rich. Next slide, please. 
And this is brought to a head in um, one of Jesus' you know, seminal passages towards the end of Matthew's Gospel, where he talks about, well, you know, I was hungry and you fed me and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and I was socially isolated in prison and you came to visit me. You know, not for him the gospel of of the Tory party, wagging their finger at prisoners and taking away books from them and depriving them of, you know, arguing that a night in prison is is in the lap of luxury, courtesy of the Daily Mail and the Daily Express. No, not at all. I was in prison and you visited me. You came to visit me. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, notice brothers and sisters, are these born-again believers who've signed on the dotted line and presented their card and tapped in their PIN number? I think not. Matthew 5.45, you know, the son makes his son, the Lord makes his son shine on, uh, and the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. What a lovely expression of grace on a beautiful today, day like today when we see you know, a world full of autumn sunshine. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You see an enormously powerful expression of the love of God for the people made in his image. Next slide, please. And next slide again, thank you. So this whole theme is taken up in Isaiah 58, where God says through the prophet Isaiah, I really don't want this stuff, I want that stuff. And this is taken up again by Jesus repeatedly when he quotes, you know, mercy triumphs over judgment. And of course we know that in our own relationships, don't we? Because Psalm 51, you know, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, keep a record of our sins, then Lord, who could stand? We're all flawed, aren't we? That's the human condition. And so guess what? I want you to loose the chains of injustice and untie. You know, the world is a pretty nasty place. Thomas Hobbes, the 17th century philosopher, said life for many people is nasty, brutish, and short. Franz Fanon, the French sociologist, wrote a book called The Wretched of the Earth, in which, again, he describes the human condition of, of what we call today the majority world. And today, although absolute poverty is being reduced, the wealth of the world is concentrated more and more in the hands of a small number of people. This is wealth which is derived from things like mineral deposits and agricultural potential, which is part of the world that God has made. Did he made it, make it for rich oligarchs and plutocrats? I think not. He made it for the ordinary human. How, what an indictment then of our world that the life expectancy of people in Malawi is, is 39 And by the way, the life expectancy of people in Glasgow at about 70, 71 is 10 years less than the life expectancy of people who live in Kensington and Chelsea. So this this whole idea of injustice is structural. It's, It's bound up by processes which have a life of their own. They keep on going on. Profit maximizing businesses will drive down their costs, including wages, to the point where people become impoverished. That is almost a law of enlightened business behavior in the world of, for example, capitalism, just to take one example. So what I'd like to do now, very, very quickly, is give you 50 examples, if you'll forgive the overkill, of structural chains of injustice. So next slide, please. So what we see in the world around us is people's quality of life limited by a whole range of factors from addiction, for example. Um, Alcohol is Britain's favorite drug. You know, heroin kills 300 a year. Alcohol kills uh, 30,000. Tobacco used to kill 100,000 until the government was willing to actually do something about limiting its its, uh, proliferation. Arms, for example... We make a great deal out of ISIS, but actually um, the Syrian government in Syria has killed many times more people than ISIS. You know, ISIS has just been very clever at exploiting media beheadings. Many more beheadings go on in, in Saudi Arabia. I believe something like 240 people have been executed in, in Saudi Arabia this year. If we look at police brutality, we look at the number of people killed in U.S. police custody this year alone, as tracked by the counted database. The figure is well over 1,000. When I say custody, I mean in interactions with the police. Next slide, please. If we look at debt, the the church here runs a a debt advice center, and debt afflicts not just individuals, but also whole countries. Goldman Sachs, courtesy of Goldman Sachs, the average Greek citizen has to repay 14,000 euros every year for the foreseeable future, for at least 30 years. There's absolutely no way they can do that. It's no wonder that that banks, so-called merchant banks, who I would describe as socially useless, in fact, socially destructive, um, are called vulture funds if we look at their dealings with, for example, the Argentinian government. 
court fees. Uh, 40 odd magistrates have resigned this year since April, since Chris Grayling introduced a fee uh, of up to £1,200 for people in court, many of whom are destitute, many of whom have no resources at all and are there in court because of non payment of things like council tax or whatever. So, a number, something like 40 odd magistrates, have resigned their position as magistrates because of the sheer contradiction of, of trying to uphold justice on the one hand and then trying to extract money from the destitute where they simply don't have it, so the only way that people can cope is, is to be driven further into destitution. Where's not just the logic behind that, where's the humanity in that? Denial of access to education. Look at all those cultures and groups around the world where women, for example, are prevented even from accessing um, primary school education. Disability rights. It's extraordinary that our government should come up with something called the bedroom tax. In the 17th century, the government taxed windows, and so what they did, they taxed daylight, which is very clever, wasn't it? I thought I said that when God made us, he gave us a lot of guidance because he gave us a brain. You wouldn't believe it sometimes, would you? So what we do is we, ta- we, we come up with something called the spare bedroom subsidy and we withdraw housing benefit from people who probably need a second bedroom because they have disability issues and therefore need etc, etc, etc. Meanwhile, what we do is we give a billion pound tax handback to HSBC and Standard Chartered in, f- in the form of the bank levy because they said they would withdraw their headquarters and put them somewhere else. Oh, well, a billion, you know. We've cut corporation tax progressively. It's now 21%. It was 28% in 2010. This is corporation tax on company profits. The Chancellor has pledged to reduce it to 18% by the year 2020. And he says we're a high-tax country. The rate of corporation tax in the USA is 35%. We are at the lowest rate of corporation tax in the entire G20 group of countries. And, and he wants to drive it lower still. Why? Who benefits from lower corporation tax? The rich or the poor? Again, as I said, it's bleeding obvious, isn't it? Next slide. Guantanamo. We've just seen Sheikh Rama return from Guantanamo, which is operated against international law. The USA and Somalia are the only countries that have not signed up to respect the International Criminal Court. Justice. Chains of injustice. The USA has a base in the Indian Ocean called Diego Garcia from which long-range bombers bombed Iraq in the operation so-called shock and awe. Um, in order to make that base available in the 1960s, the entire population of the Chagos Island, Islanders were dispossessed and shipped out. They've tried to reclaim just citizenship of their nation in the UK courts and, and achieved some success. Chains of injustice. Next slide, please. London's a pretty tolerant um, community. I would argue it's probably one of the most successful um, multiracial, multi-group cities in the world, and yet we still see LGB hate crime. We see anti-Muslim hate crime. The number of, of attacks that's gone up against mosques, for example, dramatically increased in the last year. Um, if we look at things like honor, violent, uh, honor killings, for example, still we see in India um, appalling treatment of young women um, very soon after marriage because the whole idea is you get your hands on their dowry, their gold. Chains of injustice. Disappearances. You know, shortly we'll be seeing General Sisi come to London. Um, you know, there are many, many people in prison um, and subject to things like torture as a result of General Sisi's activities in Cairo. Meanwhile, we welcome him. Similarly, similarly with Xi Jinping, you know, various people who protested against his visit to London last week. Chains of injustice. Next, please. Kuroshi is an interesting one. Kuroshi is death due to, uh, due to premature heart failure, due to overwork. Um, in Irish societies, sometimes you get bonus points if you have a Roman Catholic priest in the family. In Japan, you get bonus points if someone in your family dies prematurely due to heart failure, due to overwork. Bonkers, isn't it? It's sometimes there, it's the power of cultural norms that normalize the absolutely abnormal. Pollution of air, sea, and land. We've seen Volkswagen recently. The, the, the software designed to defeat vehicle emissions for Volkswagen didn't just happen to be there for the chief executive to say we screwed up. It's absolute nonsense. That was a very, very deliberate course of action. Meanwhile, who's cleaning up the bill? Your lungs. Who's cleaning up the cost of properly designed motor vehicles? And it's not just Volkswagen. It's the whole major motor industry. Your lungs. My lungs. The people who work in Oxford Street. 
people who shop in Oxford Street, which is many times over the European safe limit for NO2. Next slide, please. Torture, cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment. Alois Vorjak um, is a, an 84-year-old Canadian who was on his way back to Slovenia who died recently handcuffed to a custody officer in Harmonsworth Immigration Detention Center. What was that all about? The, the prison uh, and probation ombudsman castigated the Home Office and said, this is shameful, this is cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment. That's the first time any public official in the UK has been willing to lambast the Home Office for sanctioning appalling treatment of human beings. Chains, literally chains of injustice. Next slide, please. If we look at the tide of um, xenophobia against refugees in Germany, uh, the movement called Pegida, for example, which has cells virtually across the entire um, German bloc, but particularly in the former eastern German city of Dresden, um, again, attacks on asylum seekers, the whole wave of hostility to foreigners. So why, why am I giving you all of this stuff? You know, this isn't just to make you feel guilty and bad about the world that we live in. It's partly we need to disabuse ourselves of our naivety because in the words of John Rental, we amuse ourselves to death. We surround ourselves with cheap entertainment and we don't actually read newspapers or we don't engage. You may or may not be aware of the fact that for the last 18 months I've written a weekly, a weekly review of seven stories of seven key groups of, of neighbours because the world is our neighbour. So I've offered some analysis, something like two sides of A4 every week. So these, these chains of injustice reflect detailed stories that I've written over the last 18 months. And you can get this along with our New Testament in a Year thing, which uh, is a set of writings that will help you in your journey through the, the New Testament. So if you're interested, there's a QR code lurking in the undergrowth on that which you're very welcome to get. But it's just taking responsibility and taking an interest in the, the, in, in the people for whom life is nasty, brutish, and short, so that as Christians we can be part of the solution and not part of the problem. As I said to a friend of mine recently, who was one of the conservative evangelical types that kind of Steve was talking about earlier, I don't mind you becoming a Christian. You know, I'm okay. I, I'm not particularly upset by that. But I, I don't see any point in you becoming a Christian if you're not going to be part of life's solutions. What is the point? You know, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Next slide, please. I haven't got time to talk about all of these people, but these are amazing individuals who've done all sorts of incredibly useful things. Dennis Mukwege, for example, is a surgeon opera operating in the Democratic Republic of Congo. His nickname is the man who repairs women, because in Congo, rape has been used as a weapon of war for so long. And he's the the only surgeon who's remained in a particular field hospital in a particular place where the, the, the sheer incidence of attacks on women has just been utterly appalling. Like Mrs. Thatcher, I could go on, but I propose not to. So last slide, please. What's the point of me giving you all of this stuff? It's, it's, for me, it's a reflection of the cross. It's a, you know, if we are Christians, we live like Christ, we die like Christ. And the challenge facing us is to do what we can, where we are with what we've got at this moment in time. While we are here, I was talking, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name. Gillian. I was talking to Gillian earlier, who's thinking of going back to Australia at uh, the end of March or something, rather. And we were talking a little bit about what Gillian might do over the next couple of months before she goes. And for all of us, we're here in this window of opportunity in our lives. We, we benefit from one another's company, from each other's encouragement, from our stimulus, from the information we get, from the sense of... Because each of us is supposed to be a walking manifestation of Christ himself. So let's, let's enjoy one another. Let's learn what we can from one another. Let's build our capacity to make a difference to the world that we live in. And, you know, we're not going to be able to cope with 50 chains of injustice, but I, I, I do not believe that any of us are unable to influence one. I think for every one of us here, there's one of those chains of injustice that you and I can do something about if we're bothered. And as Christians, are we bothered? Sorry, one, just back one. Thanks, James. Sorry. So we come together as churches to learn and, and to have our hearts changed. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26. You know, I'll take out of you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and make you sensitive to my ordinances and cause you to walk in my ways. And I'll put my law in my hearts and you will be my people and I will be your God. 
Isn't that a wonderful promise? That's the reason why we're here, and that's part of what it means to be a, to be a Christian. And that sense of, of crucifying, you know, back some of the damage inflicted on this world by our fellow humans is part of the vision that we can enjoy together, share in, and do something about. Thank you for listening. So, now we come to our Bible reading, then we're going to take some bread and some wine. This is the reading that was read to us. It's from Ephesians, chapter 6. We've read it once already, so I'd like you to just concentrate on these words. This is Paul talking. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Stand firm then with the belt of truth. What is truth? Grace. Love. God is love and God is, uh, uh, God is truth. Stand firm with the belt of truth and love around your waist. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. What's righteousness? Just doing what is right. It's a word for doing what is right and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel the gospel of Jesus which is the gospel of peace the cross one way of looking at the cross and taking a picture of it is just this Jesus takes on all the sin around him a famous Christian scholar that some of you will know of Tom Wright He said, when Jesus died because of our sins, when the Bible says Jesus died because of sin, which sins? And Tom Wright asked, my sins? I lived 2,000 years after Jesus died on the cross. Tom says, how could Jesus have died for my sins? He died because of the sins of the people and the structures and the systems He died because of the sin of Pontius Pilate who sat at the head of the Roman Empire in situ and was such a coward that even though he knew this man had done no wrong, yet he went with the flow and he washed his hands. He died, Jesus died, because the priests knew the truth but they'd saddled up to the Romans to keep in power. He died because of the system. He died because the mob who cheered for him the Sunday before, Hosanna to the son of David, sided with Barabbas and released him instead because mob mentality took hold of them and they did something that probably individually any one of them would have regretted, but together they were just carried along by. He died because... The disciples together didn't have the courage to stand up to, uh, to the opposition they were facing. Jesus took on the system. He took on the system of the Romans and the system of the Jews. He took on the system. He told the truth. He spoke peace. He walked with love. And the system crucified him. But three days later, he rose from the dead. And the message of the cross is this, from Jesus. You can trust me, a dead Messiah looks not worth following, but I rose from the dead. You can take on the system, you don't have to give in. You can take on the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world. Jerry's been talking about some of the powers of this world today. You know, a good sermon, I said this morning, you perhaps have heard me say this before, isn't necessarily something you agree with every single word. The Bible is a discussion and it calls us to discussion. And a really great sermon is one that sends you away thinking and debating. Shouldn't it be that way? Jesus takes on the powers. And this theory or understanding or picture of the cross is called Christus Victor. Um, 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 a guy called Gustav Allen in 1931 wrote a book called uh, Christus Victor. And you, now you know the name. If you Googled it, you find endless 
uh, literature about Christus Victor. The understanding of the cross, which is about how Jesus takes on the powers, the authorities, because he will not submit to them. If we're going to change our world, we need to do the same thing. But not by bombing um, uh, uh, clinics that we disagree with, or enemies that we disagree with, or hurling rocks through windows. No, Paul says it. You take this on by putting the belt of truth, which is grace and love, round your waist, and the breastplate of doing right, and, sh- and shod in your feet with the gospel of peace. And that sometimes looks like, I'm going to be crucified. Well, they actually did crucify Jesus, but he rose from the dead. As Jerry went through that list of things, there'd be things on there that really you feel passionate about. And there perhaps were things you want to say to Jerry, but you didn't put on that list the issue that we should be engaged in. Our task is to be engaged, and it is to fight but to fight with peace. One last thing from me before we take the bread and wine together. I thought Jerry's last list of names was fantastic because if you think of people who've taken on the powers and on the authorities, I mean, we'd all put up there Nelson Mandela, uh, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, wouldn't we? They'd, yeah, William Wilberforce, he's a dead cert. Take on the powers and the authorities and battle through. But none of those famous names came up there because actually they've done brilliantly well. But we can look back and say, oh, you know, William Wilberforce, what a man. You know, Martin Luther King, what a man. But here are some contemporary people living out a battle against what's wrong. And the question is, how do we live out that battle but live it out in a way which is about grace and truth because they turn out to be the same thing. Let's pray together and then we take some bread and wine. We thank you, Father, that Jesus demonstrates through his death on the cross for us that he is willing to take on the powers, the rulers, the authorities, the status quo, and he's willing to take it on with love. Love your neighbor, which includes your enemy. Live a life of grace, but be persistent. Lord, we ask that in our lives this week, in our relationships, in our jobs, in the issues we're engaged with, you will show us how to struggle against authorities and rulers and powers that oppress and repress so many and bring truth and bring grace and bring hope into those places. This is our prayer together. Amen.